You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Taken a bit of a detour over the past month into the book of Ruth, which was a huge blessing. And so we're going to pick up 1 Samuel once again. And if you've been following along, you'll know that 1 Samuel is a story about two kings, Saul and David. Now, the first half of the time that we spent looking at Samuel was looking at the stories of Samuel and Saul, and this half will be looking at Samuel and David, because they're not just two kings, two different kings, they're two very different kinds of kings. Saul is a king's king, a man's man, a warrior's warrior. He looks the part, he looks like a king. David, on the other hand is a shepherd, a musician, a poet, a nobody. The story of 1 Samuel is really one of leadership and who we place our trust in. Which leaders do we trust? And that's not that dissimilar to this story we find ourselves in today. We are constantly looking for leaders to trust and unfortunately finding that not many of them are all that trustworthy. Ours is a culture where failed leadership is put on display. And in fact, that's what we find this morning as we pick up the book of 1 Samuel again. If you remember back five weeks, as I'm sure everyone in this church does, you remember that Saul has failed. Not just failed a little bit, failed a lot. He's placed his trust in other places and God has removed Not just his authority, not just his sense of providence, but removed his authority from him. He's removed the spirit of God from Saul. God has announced that Saul is king no more. And although Saul retains the position of king, he has no authority from God. And so there's this discrepancy between the two. And so at the end of chapter 15, we find Samuel mourning the loss of Saul, the failure of Saul. And in fact, that's where we pick up in chapter 16 this morning. Samuel is evidently still mourning because the Lord says to him, how long will you be filled with sorrow because of Saul? I've refused to have him as king over Israel, so go and fill your horn with olive oil and go on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a young cow with you and tell the elders of Bethlehem, I've come to offer a sacrifice. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and then I'll show you what to do. You must anoint for me the one I point out to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded, but the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? See, what's going on here, make no mistake, is that Samuel is enacting treason. To anoint a new king whilst another king is on the throne is treason. Even in Australia, a nation... I, I grew up thinking that if you were the prime minister, you just stayed in that job for life. Right? In the last 10 years, we've had, what, five prime ministers. Even in Australia, which has such political turmoil, treason will get you mandatory life imprisonment. Treason is no small thing. That's what's happening. God has asked Samuel to anoint a new king and even the elders of Bethlehem know that something is not quite right about this picture. They've come to him saying, do you come peaceably? Is there going to be any trouble? And so Samuel says, no, 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 we're, we're just anointing 
we're just, we're just making a sacrifice. There's something more going on. And so what Samuel does is he invites Jesse, the Bethlehemite, to this sacrifice, to this worship session. He says, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me. And so he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab, Jesse's oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord anointed is before him. If you cast your your mind back a couple of months, you'll remember the story of Hannah. See, Samuel starts out with the story of Hannah, a a young woman who is beset by the fact that she cannot have a son. She cannot have children at all. And so she's crying out to God to deliver deliver her a child. And eventually we come to chapter 2 where God has provided for her. And this song of Hannah really sets the agenda for the whole of 1 Samuel. Because it says a couple of things repeatedly, and particularly it focuses on pride and the fact that we should not be proud. So it says in chapter 2, verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And again in verse 9, if my clicker works, they work too well. In verse 9, for not by might does one prevail. Hannah says again and again, don't be proud. Don't think so highly upon yourself. Actually, that's interesting because in the Hebrew, the word for pride is very close, or in fact a synonym for height. We, We kind of retain some of this even in the English modern language because if someone would say that they speak highly of themselves, we'd say they're proud. If someone is high and mighty, there's someone who's a bit too big for their own britches. So there's this link between pride and height. And it's interesting that when we meet Saul for the very first time, what's one of the descriptions of Saul? He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. That should be a red flag. And so when we come to Eliab this morning... It's interesting that Samuel sees Eliab and is like, this is the one, this is the king. He looks like a king. Well, he's about to make the same mistake the first time. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Eliab is being set up as the new Saul. He looks like a king, he walks like a king, he talks like a king. And yet God says something that throws the whole endeavor on its head. This is one of those scriptures that we've perhaps heard so often that it's become familiar and therefore not earth-shattering to us. But when God says, the Lord does not see as mortals see, they look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, that is devastating for Israel's model of leadership. If you did not look like a king, you could not be the king. We go, of course, it's about character. It's about what you most deeply love. This is a change. In the Bible, there's, a, there's about five re- reoccurring elements that make up a person's body that it routinely talks about. It talks about the mind, it talks about your body, it talks about your will, it talks about your guts, and it talks about the heart. And if we were to crudely define them, it would be that the mind thinks, that the body does, that the gut feels, the will decides, and the heart loves. 
When we think about the heart, we often think about what we feel, and that there's an element of truth to that, but the heart is really about what you love most. It's not just every fleeting emotion that you might feel, but what you love at your innermost core. It's your deepest fears, your deepest hungers, your deepest longings, your deepest loves. This year has been a bit of a a weird, strange year for me. This is the first year that I've attended more funerals than weddings. Which is a confronting change. Because weddings are often full of emotion, and full of opportunity, they're full of of love, of, of endless possibilities. But I tend to think funerals are about our hearts. Funerals really center upon what a person actually, truly loved in their life. You, you meet with a, a grieving family and what comes out of their stories are the depictions of what the person who has passed truly actually loved. You can tend to almost pinpoint what was their innermost heart. What would God have seen in them? That's what comes out of funerals is their heart. And the heart is very important. In the book of Proverbs... It says this, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. Other translations have it, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The heart matters. If you want to work out what you actually truly love, because often it's guarded from us, you can do two things, I think, at least two things. One short term, one long term. One which can be a confronting exercise, is to think about your own funeral. What would be said about you? What would be said about what you love? What stories might be told that reveal what you truly have built your life around? Because what you've built your life around is what you love. Now, I hope that at my funeral it might be something like Jimmy loved Jesus and his family and cycling and hopefully in that order. But who knows? But it's a helpful thing to think about what are the things that I love that would be said about me when I pass. But if that's confronting, there's another thing you can do, and that's just look at your last week. Because we build our lives around what we love. And so often we say we love something, but we don't actually. You can say that you love going to the gym, but if you don't go to the gym, you don't love it, do you? If you say you love, uh, I don't know, Long movies? Sure. If you say you love long movies and you fall asleep after... Lawn mowing. Yeah. Well, if you love lawn mowing and I come over to your house and it's past my shoulders, I'll know that something's not quite right. Right? What we actually love is revealed by what we do. So what do you do? What have you built your life around? Because the dad who says he loves his family yet spends all the time at the office... Well, that might be a confronting conversation. What do you actually love? Because God sees the heart. We look upon the outer, but God looks upon the inner. And because God looks at the heart, he rejects seven sons of Jesse. So in one of the most humiliating lineups of all time. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. I can almost imagine them going from tallest to smallest, a descending line of rejection. And Samuel must have been like, what's going on Lord? You told me that there'd be a son of Jesse who would be king. All the sons are here. 
Is there, is there one missing? Well, there was. Are all your sons here? And he said, there remains the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. It's interesting that David, the youngest son of Jesse, is out tending the sheep because the first time we meet Saul, he's also in the role of a shepherd. Two kings compared and contrasted. In chapter 9, Saul is meant to be a shepherd but has lost his father's flock. In fact, in a couple of verses, he basically just gives up on finding them. David is faithfully tending the sheep. And in the next chapter, we'll discover not only does he faithfully care for them, he actually lays down his life for them, protecting them from bears and lions and from danger. Two shepherds, two kings. And when God actually consecrates and makes a covenant with David, he says something very interesting. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be princes over my people Israel. There is a sense that the job description of David has not changed. It's just the flock that changed. David is still a shepherd. It's just the people he is caring for have changed. Saul was still meant to be a shepherd, but the people changed. Saul was a failed shepherd, and he was a failed king. David was a faithful shepherd and remained a faithful king. There is an element towards leadership that all leadership, all leaders should be shepherds, caring, tending, laying down their life for their sheep. The job stayed the same, but the flock changed. So we come to the end of this story. It says, he sent him in, brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and was handsome. Do you notice anything in that description that was missing? Doesn't describe his height, does it? Hmm, interesting. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Dear Lord, please help me with technology. (laughs) There we go. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Can we go to verse 13, Salvaraj? And next one? Next one? One more. There we go. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Samuel comes to Bethlehem and he finds David and says, This is the one. This is the one that God has anointed. This is the king that Israel needs. And we know that this little shepherd boy from Nowheresville goes on to become the greatest king that Israel will ever have. He's part of the line of Jesus. He's an important figure. Samuel chooses the king, and in a very real sense, we are being asked to make the same decision. Which king will you have? Will you pick King Saul or will you pick King David? Because too often we make kings in our own life. It may not be people, it may not be leaders, but things, ideas, 
central in our lives, that they have captivated our hearts and we've placed them on the throne. It's what the Bible calls idols. Good things that God has given us, that we have made ultimate things. We have made kings in our life and that can be just about anything. It could be our jobs, it could be education, it could be our families, it could be safety, it could be security, it could be the football. Anything that you love deeply enough to build your life around will be king in your life. Everything else will have to go. That's why it's important to discern and think about what you most love. Because what we love will either haunt us or help us. It's interesting, I find, that Saul is removed from leadership and spends the rest of his days haunted. It's the sting in the tail of 1 Samuel, isn't it? That in verse 14, I think on the next slide, Selvaraj. Actually, can you go two more? Let's see if I put it up there. There we go. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, See now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Saul is tormented by his loves. I think the word evil here is a bit unfortunate, a bit of an unfortunate translation because the actual word used here can mean bad or wicked but can also mean sad, unhappy, depressed. And I think what has happened here is that God has sent an angel or a spirit of judgment before Saul to bring before him his failures, to remind him of what happens when you place yourself on the throne. Saul loved power. Saul wanted wanted to be the king. He wanted to be in charge so much that he actually said, God, I don't need you. Saul was haunted the rest of his life. So, Varys, can we go back two slides now to that quote? One more? Yeah. This is a quote by David Foster Wallace. This is not a Christian saying this. This is an atheist saying this. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you will never have enough. Next slide. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so forth. What we love haunts us or helps us, and Saul is haunted. The rest of the book of 1 Samuel is the gradual unhinging of Saul and he becomes more and more erratic as he's tormented by his failures. But it's interesting, I find, that in chapter 16, who helps Saul as well? He has this spirit that is tormenting him. Here we go. One of the young young men answered, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Even Saul, who's rejected God, is helped by David, who has the presence of God all over him. Your loves will either help you or 
haunt you. The book of 1 Samuel is all about leadership, who we place our trust in. And the truth is, Even David, the greatest king of Israel, is not the king we really need. If you know the story of David well, you'll know that David is a failure, not to the extent of Saul. He still retains his love for the Lord, but he's a failure. Because the king we actually need is not Saul or David or any political figure. It's Jesus. See, David is a good shepherd, but Jesus is the good shepherd. David is a good king, but he's not the king of kings. And one of the things that we have to grapple with and wrestle with is the fact that not only have we chosen a king in our lives, but too often we have chosen the wrong king. We can come on a Sunday and raise our hands or lay them low. We can worship our God. We can say confession, but is Jesus really the king of our hearts? Is he who you've really built your life around? Because if not, it will haunt you eventually. You might not even notice. Because even David knows that he's not the ultimate king. I love praying with my son Nathan, and one of the prayers that we pray just about every day at the moment is from Psalm 23. How does Psalm 23 go? The Lord is my shepherd. Even the good shepherd knows that he needs a greater shepherd. And I love the way that the book that we read translates it. It says, The Lord is my shepherd and I am his little lamb. He feeds me, he guides me, he has all that I need. See, the the great reason to build your life around Jesus is that Jesus is actually the only one who can sustain that love. Everything else will fall through. That's what we experience, isn't it? When we look at all the leaders in our lives, they are failures from time to time. Sam will fail you. I will fail you. Leaders in your work will fail you. Ideas will fail you. Your family will fail you. Jesus will never fail you. He is the good shepherd. And I encourage you, as you sit this week thinking about what your heart truly loves, thinking about what might be said about you at your funeral, thinking about the way that you build your week, to really grapple with whether Jesus is the king of your heart. Because as a good friend once said, if you've made anything else the king of your heart, you've settled for second best. And second best won't just hurt you, it will haunt you. So I encourage you, whether you've been, this is the first time you've ever been to church or whether this is the 500th week at church, if you can discern in your heart that you've made something else king, to come, confess, and say, Jesus, I need you, I trust you, will you be my shepherd? So I'm going to leave a space here, uh, a space of time for about 30 seconds, maybe a minute, just for us to sit and reflect upon whether Jesus is really the king of our hearts. What have we made king in his place? And after a minute, I'm going to pray for us. So let's take a minute now.
King of Kings. We come before you this morning. God, reveal in our hearts all the ways that we have not made you king of our lives. Show us what we truly love so that we may reorientate our hearts like a compass back to our true north. And we thank you for the book of 1 Samuel. And may we learn the lesson that what we love haunts us or helps us. And God, we pray that you would help us. Help us to cast aside all other loves. Reorientate them under the great love with which we are to have. Our Lord and our King, our great shepherd. God, we pray that as a community, that we might know you well and that we in turn might be good shepherds to one another, caring and tending. But God, let nothing else come in the way of you in our lives. So we pray this week that your spirit would show up in our lives, reveal to us, show us who you truly are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.